Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Financials podcast, Future Rich. My name is Barbara Ginty, and I am your host. Uh, I am also a CFP, which is a certified financial planner. And we are doing an expert series today with my mentor, John McCormick. Hi, John. Hi, Barbara. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, and you are also one of the first that we're doing a video podcast with because we normally do audio, but I thought for the experts, we can show your face. You don't have to be anonymous. It's not that bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm smarter than I look. <laughs> So to give our listeners a little background, we met back in 2006. So gosh, I'm like really dating myself. And I had just gotten my job at Bloomberg and you agreed to meet me for a drink to kind of mentor me and show me the ways of Wall Street. And so you've been in institutional finance for a long time now. Oh, not I, too I long. I have. Well, <laughs> o- over three decades. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So a while. <laughs> Um, so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Because I feel like you can do a better job speaking to it than I can. I'm happy to. Um, And thanks again for having me. Um, So I actually began my career back in the commercial banking arm of JP Morgan. Back then it was called Morgan Guarantee. And commercial banking, for those of you that don't know, is kind of your basic business lending. Um, We we look at basically the debt and borrowing of companies and lend them money. From there, JP Morgan became an investment bank in 1990. And I joined the investment bank. And from there, we did M&A and securities work. And that was my first dabbling into the corporate finance world. And corporate finance more broadly is really any type of finance that an institution needs, anything down the balance sheet from their debt to their equity. From there, I went to Paribas, which was a French investment bank, and we did merchant banking. And merchant banking is very different. It was dealing in middle market companies, and we would take positions in their debt as well as their equity. So we had small pieces of ownership in those businesses as well. And if and you what, think about what's, what's middle market for our listeners who don't know. So, so middle market, the, anyone you ask will have a different definition. Okay. But, 
I, I always go back to the definitions that I learned grow, growing up in the business. And people think about companies with about 50 million of earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation amortization, so EBITDA. 50 okay. million EBITDA and below, we always considered middle market. And what that really meant is that these are smaller companies. These aren't the Coca-Colas and IBMs of the world, which are very big, what we call blue chip companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are smaller borrowers, and so understanding their finances is much more important because a small mistake in a smaller company can result mistake. in a very bad situation, right? Whereas a small mistake in a big company, usually they can shrug it off. <laughs> That's a good and, way to explain so it. It's the one with how I think about it. Um, and, and so at Paribas, we were really doing merchant banking, and it was a great job. Um, and I managed a portfolio of about 12 different companies between debt positions and equity positions. Okay. We would also take board seats on some of these companies. So it really gave you a much better look into the inner workings of these businesses. And then after Paribas, I joined G Capital for a few years in their mm-hmm. sponsor finance group. So I saw a lot of pri- sponsor finance means private equity firms are going out to buy a business and we were helping them to finance the purchase of the business. Uh, okay. A lot of that was middle market as well, although some large cap businesses as well were bought. And you do see now private equity firms buying bigger and bigger companies. Yep. So they're getting up into buying some of these blue chip businesses. After GE, I actually went to a hedge fund in New York and spent 14 years there. Uh, all of that was in the world of structured finance. And structured finance, the way to think about it, is it's neither debt nor equity, but it's a certain type of finance which is dealing mostly with almost derivatives. And and what I mean by that is we would create a portfolio of investments and sell different risk tranches of those portfolios to other investors. And that was really my introduction to institutional finance as their manager. And I spent 14 years there running my business, um, and that was sold to a third party last year. And now I sit on the board of some not-for-profits and uh, try and do good work. And I think I met you right when you were leaving, uh, before you joined the hedge fund. I think that I is correct. Just it was just you. as I was leaving GE. That's right. Yep. And, and GE was a great place. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's still a great company. Um, and for, for me, though, it was the opportunity to really be much more entrepreneurial. And it was the opportunity to start my own business, which I had to learn a great many things about as I was doing the job. But for me, learning is very important. So I picked up the challenge and I enjoyed every moment of it. Yeah. And I think what you, what you did there was really interesting. So for some of our listeners with the structured finance, um, you were providing equity or debt to those companies when you were looking? We were in the leveraged finance world, in the world of what's called CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. Right. Yep. And so we were creating a portfolio of anywhere between 150 and 220 pieces of loans. And then we would tranche that whole portfolio out, meaning we would sell liabilities and equity against that portfolio. And a tranche is a a sliver, right? Is a sliver. Is a sliver. Exactly right. And and we would get those rated between AAA all the way Mm -hmm. down to double B. And then there was an equity tranche underpinning it. And, and it's a very complicated subject, but, but to think about it this way is that we were able to rate those top tranches AAA because the losses came from the bottom up and you would have to lose the entire bottom of the structure before that AAA would impair $1 of loss. Got it. Now, we probably have a lot of listeners, I feel like, including my father, who never knew what I did on Wall Street. And if he heard what you did, he'd have no idea. So also for, for our listeners, a derivative 
is an investment vehicle that takes its value from the underlying. Is that the that right is, way that to is correct. It? Instead, and, and think about it different than a cash investment. So a cash investment, it's literally direct. You buy a share of stock, you own that share of stock. That's very clear. So think about a derivative as maybe an option. So yep. an option is actually a derivative because it's deriving its value from some underlying other security, that other security being the stock. So if you buy an option to, to a call option to purchase a stock later, that call option value will go up and down depending on the value of the stock itself. So One this drives is another. We're going to get into this a little bit later. So that's why I wanted you to bet. make sure. Happy to. <laughs> we talk about it. Um, but yeah, it was also entrepreneurial for you because you were running this book of business, right? And evaluating the companies that you were going to be working with and Correct. dealing with staff and the whole I had, to hire, I had to hire the team, develop the policies and procedures, and run the group day to day. And I, I, this is a little personal side note. I think I got you a really funny shirt to wear. You did, but I couldn't wear it in the office. Oh, right, because I think it had a curse word on it. <laughs> but it referenced you being a Marine. <laughs> yes, and, and it referenced something. It's, it's a funny shirt, so it's meant as a joke, but it referenced that you can never be wrong. <laughs> and, and as we all learned in investing, everyone's always wrong sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. And so that's okay. So I think why I wanted to bring you on is because you just have this wealth of knowledge with institutional running the gamut from all the different things you've experienced. And over the recent weeks, I feel like I have gotten so many questions about investing because of what we've seen going on in the news, right? So we won't name the particular company, but we can say that Reddit was involved, various companies were involved. Um, and I think it's brought up a lot of questions about investing because people saw this happening in the news and thought, well, maybe I missed out, maybe I should get in. And you know, my take on it was that was gambling and not investing, right? Because it was gonna be a very short term period. Um, so I feel like this is a good segue. So what, what would you say about the phenomenon we've seen in the most recent weeks? So the phenomenon of the, the short squeeze. Yeah. So, so why don't, why don't we, think about, we'll break it down first, and then we can talk a little bit about it. So what, what does it really mean to be short a stock? What, what, what that really means is that you don't own it, um, but you think it's overvalued. And so you want to borrow the ability to sell it. And that's really what a short is. So what that means is you're taking the view that the, the share price of that stock is going to go down. And so you want to try to monetize or sell it where it is today. So you can call up your broker, or you can go onto your app and say, I want to short this stock. And what that does mean, though, is that someone has to lend it to you. So an owner of that stock has to lend it to you, or else someone wants to take a risk with that short. So you can put on a short position thinking it's going to fall. And the share price is going to fall. Now, the, what we saw recently in the last couple of weeks is a phenomenon. And you're right. It's a very short-term phenomenon called a short squeeze. And what that means is literally that the short positions are being squeezed out of the market. So when you're short a stock that you've borrowed, as that price continues to go up, whoever lent you the stock doesn't want to be exposed to this rising price. So you're actually losing money to them, but you only, you don't, you're not giving the money until you get your margin call. So your margin call means that you have to put up more money because your position is now underwater. Now, what we saw in the news recently with, the, with some companies is that many, many short positions existed. In fact, in one of those situations, there were more shorts than actually shares outstanding. Which is and, scary. <laughs> which is scary because theoretically then, 
what happens is they've borrowed more than exists. Yep. And, and so we saw a bunch of retail investors and, and others, I'm sure we don't know. You'll never and, know. And we'll, why don't we just ca- caveat? Cause I, I think I probably didn't explain this yet, but a retail investor is someone normal like myself or one of our Correct. listeners who has an account, has their own money to invest versus an institutional investor who has different access and right. Maybe Correct. research and, an inst- and, and, and an money. Institution- Right. And an institutional investor is usually managing money for others. Others, it, yes. And you're talking in this so world less emotion. that we live in. <laughs> less yeah, emotion. Less usually emotion. Usually attached to the money. And, and when you say more money, we're talking a lot more. There are some institutional managers out there who manage over a trillion dollars. I mean, that's just mind boggling. Yeah. You, the, your cal- the calculator wouldn't do it. The, my calculator doesn't go that far. Yeah. Mine doesn't either. <laughs> so when, when you've borrowed or, or shorted, more shares than exist, what happens then is even small movements in the price upward cause certain investors to try to own the stock. And it drives the price up very sharply. And as you saw, if you look at some of the graphs of some of the companies that were featured on these message boards, it shot up very quickly and then it fell very quickly again. And it's not to say that either one of those investors was right or wrong. But I think what you have to do is think about the situation that you are investing in and understand the risks of that situation, whether you're long or short. But the short squeeze basically resulted in those investors who were short the stock being squeezed out of the market, the share price rising quickly because they then had to buy the stock back. And every marginal buy just drove the stock higher and higher and higher until you've reached a new equilibrium. But then we saw that price fall because in fact, the real value of that company was probably way back inflated. before the short squeeze started. Yeah. Highly inflated, highly inflated. And, and, and this isn't a knock on any particular company or, or stock, but any investor, and, and I know we're going to talk about a disciplined investor, you yep. need to understand, you should understand the performance of the business and how it's performing and what it should be worth in your mind from a valuation standpoint. And I am a value investor, but then there are opportunities to make money when situations in the market throw value investing out the door. Yep. And this, and this, what we saw was value investing went out the door. This was that absolutely a, went out the door. A and, phenomenon and, also, and there was an opportunity for some. Correct. For some. And bear in mind, for the most part, that investing is a zero-sum game. So yes, for those who make money, others lose money. Yeah. And I think that people don't realize that for every person who makes a dollar, there's someone on the other side that has to match that dollar you made and lose a dollar so that it nets out to be zero. Right. So I make money, you lose money. And even if you buy a stock that rises in value, that that value that you've gained was foregone by the investor that sold you that stock. Yes. So if I sell you, Barbara, a stock at $10 and then it goes up to 15, that $5 difference, I forewent that. It's not an actual loss, but I gave up that gain. For you yeah, to have it. For, in, in order to change hands where I'm now the owner of it. Correct. So I think that's really interesting because I really talk about if you're going to be investing, and I only talk about investing for retirement using one of your work plans as your opportunity to invest because we're talking about long-term financial planning sure. here and, and not so much investing. But I think it's important to talk about what a disciplined investor is. And I think you have good categorize for that. Sure. And, and certainly when I think about a disciplined investor, right, I, I think the very first thing any investor needs to understand is what is your risk tolerance? And, and that risk tolerance, it, it can be varied for any person at any time. But to understand your risk tolerance really means how much money can you afford to lose? 
one should not be investing the rent money or the food money or the gas money. Right. You really the, ne the necessary spending that you need to survive. Correct. And to your point, I, I love the idea of using a retirement account because part of your risk tolerance of understanding where your risk tolerance is, is the duration or time period that you're investing in. It, it is hard. We talked about a short squeeze. It is hard for someone to think in their mind, I'm going to invest for a week and make a ton of money and that's it. Because those opportunities really don't exist. They exist, but they're very hard to take advantage of. You, you would have yep. to be almost like Nostradamus to, to take advantage of that. But to your but to your question, a disciplined investor understands their risk tolerance, but also sticks to it. So if you put in your mind, I like this stock at this level. If it goes up X, I'm happy with that point and I'm going to rotate out. It, it, there is a, a, a degree of vigilance, which goes with investing, whether it's a, it's a retirement account or your trading account. There is a degree of vigilance, which means you need to be cognizant of what's happening with that company, whether they're reporting earnings a competitor's coming out with a new product? What are the impacts that could affect them? And, and don't get me wrong. I also, I think of myself as a very good investor. I don't know everything. No one does. No one so, does. But you make educated investments. Mm -hmm. but, but just being disciplined means sticking to what you understand. Do not invest in things you do not understand. Th yeah. That is probably one of the worst things. And that would be the opposite of a disciplined investor. Yeah. No, understand I as much as you can. And you need to understand, I always say you need to understand what you own because then it helps you stick to your plan. Because if you ab abandon your plan, you tend to abandon it in a highly emotional state. At least that's what we see with investors. The time that they, that they get out is when it becomes so emotional, which means that there's some sort of pain being caused by the investment. And usually, not always, it means it's their investment is going down and then they now can't stomach that. Even though maybe they're going to be in there for 10 or 20 years and statistically in 10 or 20 years, they should be in a better spot they are today. But a lot of people can't stomach the emotional aspect of the ups and downs. I think that's right. And that is human nature. And yeah. that's, all, that's why having almost a written plan for what yeah. you're going to do. And even those plans, you need to evolve them. Yeah. As we saw, not just 11 months ago, markets down dramatically in a very short amount of time. Yeah. And, and even if you were a disciplined investor who said, look, that is the point at which I sell and I preserve value. It turned out you had to evolve that plan because the recovery yeah. was so sharp and so upward trajectory that people who sold at that point actually lost out on this rally. Yep, they did. But yeah, that's the interesting part. And so I really preach it, but I would say being a disciplined investor is not really as exciting. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> it's pretty boring. I always like to say, if you're doing a good job, it's probably pretty boring. You know. it, it is, but, but you can also take some idiosyncratic examples and, and go off and invest in things to learn about them. Don't, don't risk a lot of money, but, but yes, no better true. way to learn than to say, look, I'm going to take $100 or $500 and I'm going to invest it in something and see how I can understand the performance of that over time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And yet, like you said, you would take a small amount. You wouldn't do the rent money or your you, entire you should work. Never, yeah. You should never do that, right? And so what would you say for somebody who, we have a lot of listeners who probably haven't really gotten into it other than their work plan. If they were interested in learning how to invest and becoming a, I would recommend disciplined investing. Um, like do you, would you recommend books or do you think just starting with a smaller account and learning that way? Well, I, I think the, any way you can educate yourself, whether it be books, reading, research, uh, as a young 
banker, when I first started out, believe it or not, in the old days, we read newspapers. And, and, and you'd, you'd read things that had no bearing on what you were looking at or what you're investing, but you read it for context. And it can mm -hmm. actually help you in the future. So, so reading books, listening to videos, investing for sure, because there's no real way for you to see yeah. the impacts of your investment than watching it go up or down or stay flat. But those are all great. And talk to people. Do research. And, and also bear in mind that no one knows everything. So don't yeah. be afraid to ask questions. Ask questions of people you know. I, I talked to my brother-in-law about different things in investment spheres I have no knowledge about, like cryptocurrency. I have no knowledge. But it's interesting, but it gives you perspective, right? Because yeah. if, we, if we think about the new and the future and fintech and where it's heading, this is something that I think everyone, not that they should be investing necessarily, but should understand it in the understand context of on. understand what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. I think an educated consumer in any regard is always better, right? So whether, I you're, always... whether, you're, whether you're buying milk or a share of yes. Coca-Cola. Yes, exactly. You want to educate yourself before you do something. So what do you think, um, I find your career history fascinating because I had a very different institutional experience, but what do you think is the biggest thing that you learned from all of your different experience that you used with yourself today with investing? Well, I, I think it, there's probably two golden rules for myself. Okay. I, I think the first one is that no one knows everything. When I now pick up a, a piece of news and I read it, there, there are literally articles and it's not fake news. It's someone's interpretation of business news. And I read yeah. it and I say, well, actually, that's not correct. This is, this is a story that has really missed the driving forces behind why company A acquired company B. Okay. So for one, no matter where the source of the data is coming from, you should be not cynical, but skeptical. So take it with make a grain of salt. Own, yeah, make your own. own decision. Right. And I'm not saying that, that people are wrong all the time, but you, you need to look at things critically, especially as an investor. Be critical because that is your money that you're investing. I was going to say, yeah. And you're trying to protect it. I, I think the other one is to ask questions. Ask questions of people, of situations. I, when, when we were investing for institutional clients and my, my guys were always looking at situations and bringing them to me, I would always ask questions, no matter how dumb it sounded. And it's really the basics. Who, what, where, why, when, and how. You're telling, you're telling me this company's sales are, are increasing 30% every year. To whom? Why? How are they doing it? Right. Understand what's going on in a situation, and that will make you a better investor. I also think that having a grounding in accounting, it, it sounds boring. But, but accounting, all these companies- I think, I think boring is the theme here. <laughs> but boring is a good theme, but, but think about it. All these companies have financials yep. that you can look at. And sure, I've spent three decades in, in finance and, and accounting to me was always something I looked for in my guys, which is make sure you understand how this company's numbers are ticking and tying because that in the end is how we get to value investing. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think uh, that's a good point. It's your money, right? And so no one's going to really care about it as much as you. And also the question thing is interesting because I think a lot of people are scared to ask questions. And I actually think the smarter people in the rooms are the ones that are saying, hold on, let me ask a few more questions so I can understand it better. They're, sure. I don't believe there's I mean, ever a dumb question. Even if you're shy, even if you're shy, it, 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 it pays to ask a question. Even if it's something that I've asked the dumbest questions in meetings. And you know why? 
because I didn't understand. They were saying something, I didn't understand it. And it was a very simple misunderstanding on my point. But if I had taken that misunderstanding away and invested based on my own misunderstanding, it would not have worked out well. So it was better to ask the question. Better to ask the question. I think that's great. And so a little personal background, you have two daughters. So I do. And I have, I've only met one of them. Um, she's adorable. And so because the podcast is our whole goal here is to empower women, what, what are you going to teach your daughters or what do you hope for your daughters in terms of personal finance? So I, I do have two daughters. Um, they're bookends. So one's 20, yeah. one's seven. <laughs> um, you know, with, with both of them, though, I can tell you that I started them both the same way which was very simply savings accounts. From a very early age, it was, here's a birthday check from grandma or grandpa. Let's put it in a savings account. Here's your savings account. This is the money you've been saving. For, for both of them also, I started college savings plans so that they would understand the value, not, not just of the savings, but also of the education aspect. Because I do think mm -hmm. education, not just for women, but for anyone is very empowering. And so I started them very simply with that. And as the older one has evolved beyond this, she now can manage her own budgeting. She knows how to invest. She, she knows her own risk tolerance um, for, for where she's happy to invest. And for her, um, it, it's really more developing these skills so that she can be much more independent as a person going forward. The, the little one we're still seven is still kind of young. Kind of young so yeah. we're, we're still at the stage, but we're also, we use money. We identify us currency. What is this? What is it worth? What does it buy? And so mm -hmm. understanding the value of these will, will get her started on understanding how to invest. That's fantastic. Yeah. Cause we, we talk a lot about sometimes women don't, at least from my experience, don't want to ask the questions. It's not something that's talked about. I feel like men talk about it a bit more easily than women. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast to share all it was of my your pleasure. background and experience. I think our listeners are going to absolutely love this because we've gotten so many questions on investing. So to summarize, I think our goal is asking questions, realizing that it's your money, right? So no one's going to treat it as seriously as you are. And a disciplined investor is usually the way to go. I agree 100% and stay <laughs> educated. And stay educated. So John, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Barbara, it was my pleasure. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.